I've been thinking because I just lost my dad who was 88. And oh, I'm thinking, sorry. Oh, oh, you have? Thanks. Oh. Yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, what, what did he want to be known for? And, you know, you want to know that you made a difference. Mm. You want to know that you made a difference in somebody else's life because you were put here for a reason, right? Yes. And what is that reason? So if every day you can do something to make someone else's life just a little bit better, and sometimes it's just smiling at them, and sometimes it's just, you know, giving them advice and perspective as to how to make something better. Sometimes it's amplifying their work. And that's why I really believe in this mentorship and coaching and sponsorship because it can make someone's life so much better. And it's no skin off your back. It's, you know, it's easy for you to do. It's easy and it can make such a difference in someone else's life. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back to the show. Did you know that all high achieving people have mentors in their life? I didn't until today's interview. Joining us is Dr. Ruth Gautian, who is a mentorship and leadership expert. She's the chief learning officer and assistant professor of education in anesthesiology and former assistant dean of mentoring and executive director of the Mentoring Academy at Weill Cornell Medicine. She's been hailed by the journal Nature and Columbia University as an expert in mentoring and leadership development and is currently a contributor to Forbes and Psychology Today, where she writes about optimizing success. Through her research, Dr. Gautian has interviewed everyone from Olympians to Nobel laureates and studies some of the highest achieving people in the world. Today, she's going to share with us the four common traits of highly successful people, the difference between having a coach, a role model, a mentor, and a sponsor, and why each of those is important in their own way, and how to align our purpose with our passion. I found this conversation fascinating, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Now, as a reminder, show notes can be found over at thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash 106 for today's interview. And while you're there, I'd love to invite you to join our community where you'll get a weekly email every Wednesday morning. And when you sign up, you also get a free copy of my book, Design a Life You Love, A Woman's Guide to Living a Happier and More Fulfilled Life. So let's get into the show. Hi, Ruth. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. I'm so excited. You seem fascinating, and I love talking to interesting women like yourself who are so deeply curious and go deep on whatever they're doing. Um, I'm curious. You're very accomplished and have a deep sense of curiosity and a genuine desire to want to empower others. How did you find your way into becoming a mentor? mentoring and leadership expert. I mean, those are very specific and empowering roles. How did did that happen? It was a long journey. So I actually started my bachelor's and master's are in business. And like all good business students, I actually went to work in finance and international banking. 
and did that for two years before I realized that really just wasn't for me. I wasn't whistling on my way to work. So I went back to working in higher education, which is one of those things I was doing since I was 18 years old. But I wanted to work with a different population. And I started working with medical and grad students um, in a program, an MD-PhD program that only takes the top three and a half percent. So it's really, really competitive. So I started really getting in the minds of you could, you know, I was surrounded by these really, really high achievers and they were students. And then at the age of 43, I decided to go back to school, live out my dream and get my doctorate. And I did that while working full time and raising a family. So I went to teacher's college at Columbia University and I got my doctorate in adult learning and leadership. And the reason I did that was I wanted to figure out how people like you and I learn, which is very different from the K through 12 model, right? And I was surrounded by medical and grad students who were sitting in lecture halls. And I knew there had to be a, a way that we could really be more impactful in the way we were transferring knowledge. And then in terms of the leadership development, I was, you know, I always had this, this itch that, you know, I knew some of these students would one day be my boss because they were so good. But what was it about them, right. right? How did I know they were going to ascend to leadership roles? So I really wanted to discover um, all about leadership and why people ascend to leadership roles and how we can get other people to ascend to leadership roles. And I really made looking into high achievers my, my research work. So I looked at the most successful people of our generation. It actually started with physician scientists, people like... Um, Nobel Prize winners, um, the institute directors from the National Institutes of Health, the former Surgeon General, that level of people. And since then, since finishing my doctorate, I now write for Forbes and Psychology Today. And I still, I've just expanded those high achievers to include Olympic champions and astronauts and CEOs and, you know, it's the same four things that they all do. So I do that and I teach that. Um, and that led to um, roles as an assistant dean for mentoring, where I designed and launched a mentoring academy. And now I'm the chief learning officer in anesthesiology. And I get to be around high achievers all day long. And it's awesome. I was going to say, you <laughs> must love that. I think I would love your job. <laughs> That sounds so interesting and fun. I mean, it's kind of what I do to some degree with the podcast. I find these interesting people like yourself and I say, let's go deeper. Let's understand. And and congratulations for going back to school to get your PhD at 43 with a family. I don't know how old your kids are, but like while that's working. Yeah. while working full time. Mm-hmm. How long yeah. did that take you? So I basically went to school full-time as well. I went um, the fall and spring semester and both summer semesters. So I finished really fast. (laughs) Wow. So you are a high achiever. (laughs) So we're going to have to delve into your... So I think I'm laser focused. Interesting. (laughs) Well, okay. You think you're laser focused versus the high achiever. I, I I don't see it that way, but maybe we'll get into how you <laughs> see that being different based on your research. So with the people who kind of, as you use the words, rise to leadership, have mm-hmm. you found any 
sense that they were kind of um, maybe a born leader or are leaders made? I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. I think leaders are born to be made. Okay. It's interesting. Say more, (laughs) please. Yeah. So I think everyone has potential, but what you do with that potential is the difference between being average and being A+. And if your entire goal in life is to benchmark, that means you're just being average, right? Because Mm -hmm. benchmarking is average and that's your goal. And if that's your expectation, that's all you're going to get. All you're going to get is average. But if your goal is to beat the benchmarks, then you have that extra, that extra 5% that can really launch you to become a leader. But then there's that whole other part of, do you know how to lead people? Do you know how to manage um, space and money and all these things that leaders aren't usually taught? But that's a whole separate conversation. So this is so good. Now, let's kind of shift into mentoring because I think, I don't know any woman who doesn't desire to have a mentor. And, and, you know, I'm talking about talking with friends and colleagues. I don't care how old they are, 50, 60. Everyone has that desire. But many of us, I'm Gen X, mm-hmm. kind of missed, I shouldn't say missed that opportunity. There's plenty of people. Like I look at, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. I mean, clearly she had mentors all along her 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 career path. Um, and I think it just depends kind of how it worked out. And so for me personally, I became marketing director of a major law firm at 27. I had just six months of marketing experience. The head of the firm called me in his office. He said, in three months, we're going to be in Dublin, Ireland. You're putting on a conference for emerging growth companies. I didn't even know what that was. And (laughs) I'm just being honest. And um, it was actually, I shouldn't say that. I was a paralegal in the firm before. So I had been working with startups. I mean, I did, but where I was going to find them, I didn't know. And he said, go work with this partner and here's another partner who can help you. And I talked to the two partners that they knew nothing about (laughs) putting on a conference. Now I'd never attended a conference, let alone planned one, let alone done one in another country. Oh my. (laughs) Everything, thankfully, because that was my test. Apparently, like I was, I had been given the job on a three month probationary basis. So basically that was my, you either nail it or you're out. This is my sense. Anyway, I just remember thinking, gosh, like I love marketing and it would have been nice to have had a marketing mentor before jumping in. Now, I also think that there's a lot of benefit to learning as you go mm-hmm. and you gain so much and then you have more to give. But what do you say to the woman who, or even, you know, that this show's not for men, but whatever, the man or woman, because you work with both, who is looking for a mentorship role? And, you know, they're later in their career. I'm just curious, you know, what your thoughts are on that. So I think it's, you're never too young or never too old to have a mentor and to be a mentor. Okay. I think you can, and you should be both. And you should not just have one mentor. You should have a team of mentors. So let's, let's break that down a little bit and and the four different roles that can exist, right? You can have a role model, someone who has the job you want or has a skill that you want, right? So I may want the public speaking skills of President Barack Obama. I'm likely never going to meet President Obama, but I want to be able to really have an impactful message that is delivered well. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to connect with people the way Oprah Winfrey connects with people. Never going to meet Oprah, but I'd still like to be able to connect with people. That's a role model. 
a mentor, and this I want to make sure we're using the right definitions. Yes. Someone who talks with you. You come in with your goal, you come up with a plan, and they help you um, develop that plan. They can introduce you to the right people. They can right. open up, you know, create opportunities for you. Um, a coach is somebody who works with you for a finite period of time, as opposed to a mentor that's long-term. And it's for a very specific skill, right? So if you're going to give a TED Talk, then you might want a coach that helps you with storytelling. I coach people to help with imposter, overcome imposter syndrome, develop executive presence, um, things like that. And um, so that's role model, mentor, coach, and then a sponsor is someone who talks about you when you're not even in the room. So these are the people that would nominate you for jobs and promotions and leading a conference when you have six months experience and um, <laughs> you know those kinds of things. Somebody who talks about you in, in a really great way and amplifies your work. Those are the four types of roles. Now, what I think everyone should have is a mentoring team, not just one person. So you don't just want somebody with marketing experience, right, in your mm -hmm. situation. You want someone with a whole suite of experiences. Now, no one person has that. So you really develop people around you that can help with that. So my mentoring team has people from medicine, science, law, education, military, business, and there's things I learn from each one. They don't all have to get together in the same room. They likely won't even all know each other. But it's important that you get those different perspectives, those diverse perspectives. And there's a way to structure that mentoring team um, in a very strategic way that includes people who really know you well, which I refer to as the people who know you first thing in the morning before you've had your coffee while you're still in your pajamas and your brain's all foggy right? Those are probably the people that you are staying at home with during COVID. Yeah. Um, that's one layer. The next layer um, are your work colleagues and people who you know what you're like when you're working under pressure and have deadlines to meet. And the final layer of people who can be on your mentoring team are the thought leaders in your field. And even if you don't know them, that's okay, because with one or two introductions, you can meet them. So those are the layers um, and of how to develop a mentoring team. And I actually put a resource for your listeners on there. If they want to do that, mm -hmm. um, they can just go. I threw it on my website, which is ruthgotian.com slash mentoring team. And if you go there, there's actually a link to an article and a worksheet that the listeners can develop their own mentoring team. And it takes less than five minutes. Okay, this is so good. Thank you for doing that. I didn't know you were put, pulling that together, but I will for sure have that in the show notes. Um, mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Okay, let me break this down a little bit more just so for clarification, because I actually, one of the questions I had for you was, where do you see podcasts and books in the mm -hmm. world of mentorship? And mm -hmm. so your definition, though, is somebody you're talking to. So mm -hmm it wouldn't be specifically a mentor. Although in my experience, I've said that I've gotten mentorship to some degree through um, reading and podcasts and observing the head of the firm who I sat next to, you know, he was in charge and I reported directly to him. So I was one of few people who had, you know, direct access if I needed it. Right. Although 
he, you know, the marketing was my baby. I wasn't going to him for the marketing piece. Right. Clearly, (laughs) clearly. Um, But I learned so much from observation, but that's very different than having somebody who's really invested. Right. So one of the things, there's four pillars of what all elite high achievers do. Mm -hmm. One of those pillars, and there's a lot of depth to this pillar, is that they learn informally. Yeah. More than they learn formally. They're not sitting in a classroom. They're learning informally. They learn by, as you said, observing other people. They learn by talking to other people. They're very coachable. They all have mentors. They do a lot of, um, they, it's, they are absorbing knowledge and they can absorb knowledge in different ways. So again, it could be by watching somebody else, by talking to somebody else, by watching YouTube videos related to whatever they have to work on by listening to podcasts, by reading articles or books or at newspapers, there is a lot of absorption of knowledge. So, you know, you hear about high achievers, they all read five hours a day. Yeah, that's just one piece of what they do. And it's not about reading, it's about absorbing knowledge. And it's not always about reading. And you're saying this to a book lover, it's not always about reading. There are other ways to absorb knowledge. <laughs> Well, I know that you're working on a book, thirty the thirty five best places to find a mentor. Which mm-hmm. when is that coming out? By the way, that one I don't know yet. But there is a book that's coming out before that one. Okay. Um, I'm working on on um, two simultaneously. Um, the first one is going to be on these four pillars that all elite high achievers do, and how we could emulate that in our own lives. That's going to be exciting. I'm okay, that now. <laughs> so, since you're writing it now, probably we should have that conversation when the book is ready. Do you think okay. that's right? Unless, um, but happy to come back. <laughs> yeah, I would love for you to. But I also now I'm like, well, you kind of have to share <laughs> at least one of those best thing. You know what you, what you've learned. Mm-hmm. What, what can so, you tell us? Yeah, sure. So I'll tell you about. Um, there's the four the four um, pieces, the four pillars, and they each have different depth to them. So I already spoke about the informal learning that they all do, the way they are absorbing knowledge, right? And again, it's that listening and that watching and that reading and talking with other people. And they'll talk to people who are senior to them, junior to them, or at their level. They um, also have the most incredible work ethic you have ever seen right? They love what they do and they will put their heart and soul into it and they would do it for free if they could. So, you know, you heard about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was sending out voicemails at 3 a.m. She loved what she did. I mean, it was an incredible work ethic. I spoke to some of her former clerks. They all talked about this work ethic. They also, these elite high achievers have this incredible passion that they've developed a career around. So again, they would do this for free if they could. They have found their passion and they put everything behind it. So um, that's the third one. And the fourth one is they've built a very, very strong foundation, which they're constantly reinforcing. So the physician scientists are still designing experiments, even though they have a whole team to do it. The athletes are still doing the same drills you would see in a junior high gymnasium. It's the same drills, right? You heard about Kobe Bryant doing that at five in the morning. Mm. Build that foundation, make sure it's strong, right? Martial arts, they are still doing those same katas, which are those form movements. Um, They're still doing it. That's how they start every single practice to make sure they have that down straight. 
Wow. How many people have you interviewed for this? Oh my God, so many. <laughs> and they're so good because it is um, Nobel laureates and a Surgeon General and NASA astronauts and um, Olympians and Olympic champions and uh, CEOs. And they all have stories that are incredible, incredible. So and- many. Have you seen the patterns? So you take the data and then you're like, okay, this came up again. This came up again. This came up again. Right. So at first, when you start, you just, you know, you have your research questions and they're answering the questions, but then you get something that's called data saturation, which means you know what they're going to say before they even say it. So now when I ask those same questions, you know, they all have their different twist on it, but the answers always fall into the same bucket. But here is, here's the kicker. If you want to succeed, you have to do all four simultaneously. You can't just say, I'm going to work 20 hours a day. That's not, that's not it because you don't have those other three pillars. You have to have all four, not a three-legged stool. You need a four-legged stool. You know what I'm curious about? Do these people kind of have a sense of that leadership again when they were children? The reason I'm asking this is because I'm seeing, so most of the female entrepreneurs who have come on have been in the 2%. They are the seven plus figure earners. Yep. So there's just something about talking to them. I'm getting a sense. I'm like, this has been in your DNA. There's a, there's some personality trait. Maybe they didn't exhibit the leadership or whatever when they were younger, but they have this particular drive. There's something there that they all seem to have. And even some level of confidence, maybe that's not what you've seen, but like there just seems to be this level of confidence. They have a belief in themselves. So, right. They have an extremely strong self-efficacy and they have, I call this mantra where they fear not trying more than they fear failing. Mm -hmm. They fear not trying more than they fear failing. Love it. So it's okay to fail. They understand that. You pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and try again. But not trying is not an option. And that's why the Olympians have tried out for multiple Olympics, right? The physician scientists have failed hundreds of experiments. Their papers were constantly rejected, but they didn't let that deter them. So when they see challenges... It's not a question of if they will get over that hurdle, it's how and when, because they know that they will get over it. So they focus on what they can control. And that's where they put all their energy. They control what they can control. And they've all had mentors? All of them. They all all have. All of them. Just organically though, because it seems to me that a lot of these people, it's been happening organically. Like even when you read Sheryl Sandberg's book, it seemed like it sort of happened organically versus, you know, this idea of, would you be my mentor? It's, you know, a lot of people don't even understand what that relationship's supposed to mean. And then it becomes (laughs) awkward and uncomfortable and nobody knows what to do. And you meet once for a cup of coffee and then it doesn't happen again. That's right. And that, that's why I wrote a piece for Forbes that how not to ask someone <laughs> to be your mentor. I said, don't use the M word because the second you're asking someone to be your mentor, you're asking them to take on a job and who has remnants of time. Yeah. So don't use the M word. Yeah. Instead, ask for something very, very specific and contextual. So you can say, can I get your perspective on this proposal I'm writing or on this paper I wrote, or on this presentation I'm giving, or I'm thinking about growing into this 
professional opportunity, what are some of the things you think I should do in order to really succeed at that? Are there people I should talk to, courses I should take, books I should read, articles I should read? What are some of the things? So you're asking for something very contextual. It's very focused. It takes 20 minutes. It's not about formal relationships because the formal mentoring relationships, rarely do they work because they're assigned so randomly, right? Are you going to be my mentor because we're both women? I mean, I don't get along with all women, totally. right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, of course. I think women can be the worst for each other in corporate environments. At least I, I've been witness to bad behavior in that regard and trying to actually keep women down versus build right. them up. I think that's changing, but um, we want, I think that's we want to We want to get together with people that we connect with. So more important than assigning mentors is really creating opportunities where these organic relationships can develop. And that's what organizations can do. And that's what individuals can do. Put yeah. yourself in those places. Totally. Because a lot of the women, though, who listen to the show might be entrepreneurs. So they're not in a structure anymore, a corporate structure. They probably left that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. What advice can you give if they're not in a traditional model? So they need to find what we call in adult learning a community of practice. A community of practice are people who are like you. There is some sort of common thread. So women entrepreneurs could be a community of practice. It could be a Facebook group. It could be an email listserv. It could be a conference. Different ways that you can connect with each other to tell each other about opportunities, amplify each other's work. Um, If you say, I'm hitting a snag, has anyone ever dealt with this? Any ideas, any thoughts? that's what really what a community of practice does. And that's really what you want to be a part of. And you can do it by industry. You can do it by location. You can do it by age group. There's so many different ways that you can slice and dice this community of practice. You should be in several. Okay. Now you would, you broke it down in the beginning in terms of mentorship, but you talked about role models, coaches, mentors. What was the fourth one? Sponsor. And a sponsor that would be within an organization. It could um, be anywhere. Right? Okay, anyone, fair enough. Anyone, anyone who's talking about you yeah. when you're not in the room. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is going to, if I wrote an article and someone says, Ruth Gautian wrote another great article and summarized the points and you know I think it's so amazing and they put that on Twitter, that's amplifying my work, that's actually sponsoring me. Got it. Again, not necessarily a formal thing there. This is just... Exactly. Somebody admiring the work. So let's talk about the role of a coach. So all of the seven-figure women who've come on have had a coach. Mm -hmm. You see a coach, though, different than a mentor. Yes. Okay. Talk about the difference between the coach and mentor, because they have all said that they couldn't have gotten to where they are without that coach. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of them were, in fact, mentor coaches. But a lot of women, I find, are hiring that versus having an informal relationship with a group of people that are helping them achieve those goals, right? They're actually now paying for that opportunity. Correct. So a mentor, and again, I strongly believe in the informal mentoring relationships, and I feel that it should be several people, and it's long-term, right? And people can come in and out of your mentoring team. It's not a life sentence, but it is long-term, and that's what you're really looking for. Um, and they help you, you come with your goal, you come with the plan, they help you refine that plan and they connect you with opportunities related to that plan to help you meet your original goal. Mm-hmm. 
A coach works on something very specific for a finite period of time. You want to have executive presence. You want to overcome imposter syndrome. You want to, um, uh, I'm trying to think like some of the other main things that we do. How do you communicate more effectively? How do you get, um, um, how do you network effectively, right? A lot of people don't know how to initiate and maintain conversations and how to meet these interesting people. So coaches can really help you with that. And they facilitate that because they ask you questions that you might not have thought of. So they're not trying to fix you, right? Mm -hmm. You're not broken. They're just trying to enhance and leverage what you already have by pushing you a little bit outside of your comfort zone. So they help you figure out what is it you're really passionate about and how can you leverage that into a career? Okay. So can we look at your scenario? So you talked about having multiple mentors that, Mm -hmm. you know, the different parts of your life or they don't necessarily know each other. How can you just give an example of some of how those, some of those relationships developed and maybe an example of what you went to one with, just to give somebody some more specificity around how this goes. I know, and we'll look at your, I'm very grateful for the worksheet you have for us for sure, but it's nice to hear stories. Sure. Absolutely. So um, I'll give example of a few of my mentors. One of them was in charge of all MD, PhD programs at the National Institutes of Health. And he knew I had this bigger dream of um, going to get my doctorate. And we actually sat and talked about it quite a bit. And he actually said something to me, which completely changed the trajectory of my work. And I don't think I would be in this role now if it wasn't for that one line that he said to me. He said, do something important, not just interesting. Wow, that's deep. Right? And that changed my study from an institutional study to a national study. Mm. Now, understand he never told me what to do. He just helped me leverage what I was already going to do, which was to help me meet my goal. And then we talked through how I was going to do it. And he actually gave me some pointers and he introduced me to some people, which was extraordinarily helpful. Another um, another mentor I have who's a lawyer, I was telling him, you know, I give talks all over. And usually when I give a talk somewhere, I said, oh, I'm going to be in San Diego in four months. I'd love to meet up for, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee, whatever. And usually the answer is no. And I would get very, very frustrated. I'm already coming from New York to San Diego. You don't have an hour to spare. He said, no, no, no. He said, this is how the lawyers do it. I'm going to be in your town on Tuesday. Do you have time between 10 and 12 to grab a quick coffee and catch up? And all of a sudden, everyone becomes available. If I would not have spoken to a lawyer to understand how they do it in the legal profession, now he is a partner in a very prominent law firm. And if I would not have known how they do it in that profession, I never would have known to do that in mine. Wow. So that completely changed the the trajectory. Now, I have peer mentors, right? People know that I um, study elite high achievers. And after I got through to a few, People surround themselves with people who are like them. They all introduce me to their friends. So, you know, how do I know a dozen astronauts and a dozen Olympians? (laughs) Right, right. 
right? So it just snowballs that way. This is so, so interesting. <laughs> I, I love this conversation. This is so good. Um, okay. So it's interesting because you said you are laser focused, whereas when I'm talking to you, you sound very much like a high achiever. Why do you, why do you say that about yourself? Are you being modest or? <laughs> so most, most high achievers, if you ask them, they would not, they would not call themselves high achievers. Right which we call hypos, right? Yeah. They, they do, don't call themselves high achievers. In fact, I contacted a Nobel laureate. I said, I need a quote for this article I'm writing on high achievers. And he said, I don't think I'm a high achiever. And I said, you won the Nobel. I, I think you're good. <laughs> <laughs> you, you qualify things, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, it took a little convincing, but okay, he agreed. Um, and I hear this all the time and I hear from Olympic champions and the reason I think they're all like this. And I, I have these people on my show every single week. They always feel there's more room to grow. Yeah. So they never stop learning. Yeah. Right. There's always more because there's always somebody who knows more than them. Mm -hmm. So they are the expert in their little field, but they realize there's always more to learn. So they surround themselves with people that they can learn more from. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why none of the high achievers really consider themselves high achievers because they see that there's always more that they can do. So I'm just going to say then you're a high achiever. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so funny because as you're talking, I'm thinking, so I worked before I went out on my my own, I had three corporate jobs, if you will. And I reported, I was hired by and reported directly to the own, the founders, the CEOs, but also they happened to have founded the companies. They're all multi-million dollar companies. They are the high achievers you're talking about. And for sure, like I think of the head of the firm and, you know, after he'd give a talk, he'd say, how did I do? Yeah. I'm like, everyone was hanging on every word you said. Like, I don't, you know, I just, but for sure, always quite, he listened more than he spoke. He, yes. He'd make the decision and he, oh, and let's actually, we're going to transition, but everything you said, I, that's exactly what I observed in these three. They happen to be men, but men. Um, right. Let's talk about the role of intuition because that was another thing that I discerned working mm-hmm. with these people. It's something that I think is essential. And I think women have such good intuition and we don't often listen to it, but it can be the difference between making really good decisions and ending up in a place where we kind of knew we really shouldn't go. Um, Mm. Have you found that this is another trait of these people? Because I, I, you know, like this founder, you know, he'd say, I feel it in my bones. Yeah. You know, or my gut, the other one, like, you know, my gut tells me. Yeah. So, um, and I'll give you an example of some of these um, incredible physician scientists, right? These are medically trained physicians who do research they were often told that they're wasting their time. They're wasting the government's money. They're, you know, all of that. They'll never succeed. But they had the self-confidence and the self-efficacy that they were onto something. They mm-hmm. didn't know what exactly it was, yeah. but they had to try. Yeah. They had to try. And there was yeah. one in particular, this one woman who... Um, her her chairman said no. All the faculty she was working with said no. They would not give her the files for a very particular gene that she was working on because all of a sudden she was seeing kids with this very rare disorder and nobody would give her the files. Nobody. At the end, she made friends with all the nurses 
And the nurses would give her the files. Love it. And this is after she was, you know, crying in the staircase when people just berated her for wasting everyone's time. Mm -hmm. She did it anyway. And she is gifted, gifted. She found the gene. You know, it was, it's pretty incredible. And she probably saved thousands of lives from it. Wow. That's a great, that is both, those are great (laughs) stories. But so, so there's, that's another trait that I had seen. And I was curious, I had a feeling that it would be there that, you know, that, that gut sense that there's something more to look in that curiosity and that desire to learn and to improve. And it's almost like a passion. Yeah. It's also almost like a sense of being awake. Yeah. Like they get it. This is a finite existence. And so uh, I'm here, I'm going to make the most of it. And they just have that joie de vivre. (laughs) Right. Right. So they have found what they're passionate about, right? And they put everything behind that. And if, if, if all these other things are not supporting that, they don't want any part of it. So I asked this guy who I, I think is on the road to get the Nobel. Um, I said, you know, it's very interesting. You're not a department chair. You don't have these administrative roles. He said, why would I waste my time with that? Why would I waste my time with that? It takes me out of the lab. It takes me out from finding a treatment or a cure. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in meetings. No ego. It's very self-effacing. That was another thing I noticed. Very self-effacing. Not about the ego. It's not about look at me, look about the look at these titles, look at the, you know, credentials. It's exactly. it's about the passion. Well, let's talk about that for people who are listening and thinking. I actually literally just did a solo um, episode on how to remember your purpose. Cause I actually believe that it's within us. And life gives us clues and it's part of our path that we have these gifts to kind of just remember them and rediscover them and own them and, you know, pursue that, which makes us happy. Like joy is such a great indicator of, of being on purpose. But I'm curious, what, um, what is your take on passion versus purpose or how someone lives in is able to also live their passion. I think that's what people want. That's what the show's about. How do you get aligned so that you can feel so alive every day? I mean, I think everyone deserves that. That's right. And you know, you only need, there's actually research that shows you only need to spend 20% of your time doing what you're passionate about. Okay. And that makes the- Elaborate, that's interesting. Yes, yes. So for example, and I'll actually take your listeners through a passion audit, which is- how to figure out what you are passionate about. If you spend, let's say you love mentoring women and let's say you love mentoring um, women entrepreneurs. Well, you can start, if you spend just 20% of your time doing that, the other 80% of the time where you might be doing things you don't like to do, like grant writing or fundraising, you may not object to that so much if you were writing a grant to develop a program to develop women entrepreneurs. You understand? So you have to figure out what anchors you, what you are passionate about, and you have to think outside of work. So there's actually a three-column exercise that I call a passion audit that you can do. The first column, you list everything you're good at. It doesn't matter if you enjoy doing it. You're just good at it. 
And you have to be as specific as you can. Are you good at writing? Are you good at talking to people? Are you good at getting, are you good at summarizing a bunch of different ideas? Are you good at budgets? Are you good at social media? What is it that you are good at? That's the first column. The middle column is if someone took away those responsibilities away from you, you wouldn't lose a minute's sleep. And that's probably you procrastinate on those kind of things. So, you know, it might be the grant writing or the budgets or the creative stuff, right? But you want to be very specific and list those things. And the third column is what you would do for free if you could. And these are things when you're procrastinating, this is usually what you're procrastinating with. And you can start developing those things. So let's say you really enjoy uh, doing social media. Well, maybe there's a way that you can start doing that either in your um, workplace or your volunteer activities as a way to build that. And what are some of those other things? So you have to look at these three columns, look at your professional life and your personal life. Also ask people, what is it that you think I'm really good at? When you think of me, what do you come to me for, right? Is it maybe you're very organized? Maybe you're able to connect people in a certain way. Maybe you think out of the box, right? What are those things? And write that down. So I actually developed that also. There is a worksheet and an article link for it. So you can go to ruthgotian.com slash passion audit, ruthgotian.com slash passion audit. And it's there. There's an article. There's a worksheet. You can do that. And it'll give you some clarity as to what your passion and purpose is. And do you think that's the path? Because can that path, because, you know, they talk about if you love what you're, you know, let's say you're doing something, but you're not making money, then it's a hobby. (laughs) So... I'd love your thoughts on that because, you know, that's, that's how a lot of people start. You know what I mean? Maybe it's right. So, or can it be that I didn't mean to interrupt you, but can Mm -hmm. maybe the, what's considered the hobby because it's not making money also give you skill sets where you can make the money to fuel the passion. Like, I'm just curious because it sounds like these people are making a living with their passion, which I think is the ideal versus having the 80% make your money for the 20% that drives you. But what would you say? But you, but you have to find, right? You have to find, and it's based on the time that we're in, and it all depends on the, the size of your nest egg, and it all depends yeah. on your support system. Yeah. But if you don't make time in your schedule for your passion, you will get burnt out. Well, let's yeah. talk about schedules, because every single one of these seven-figure entrepreneurs, too, lived by their calendar. Mm, yep. And now that I'm thinking about it, the head of the firm, he would have stuff booked out three years out, like could tell you yeah. the date of the trip that he and his wife were going to take the boat down the Nile or what, you know, like yeah. everything was planned out. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but here's the thing. Yeah. Go ahead. We, le- we leave a lot out. So for example, I have lots of things that are scheduled too, but I know I am most effective in the morning. I can get more done between 7 a.m. and 1 p.m. than I can the rest of the day, which means my big thinking items have to get done in the morning. Yep. So my big thinking has to be done in the morning because I'm a morning person. Other people are nighttime people, so they would save that till later on, which means my, um, my rote stuff, the responding to emails, the filling out forms, the signing my name a thousand times for different things – 
that's all done when I'm, my brain is already starting to be mush, mm. right? Yeah, I don't waste my morning hours on that. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it. I need that time because that's when I'm fresh. That's when I'm sharpest. That's when I'm most creative. So that's what I do in the morning. And it's very important to schedule your day that way and put in a break in between things because things come up, number one. Now that we're all um, on Zoom all day long, you need to figure out what is your maximum number of Zooms that you can do in one day. I one day had five hours of Zoom in one day and I thought I would collapse. I, Mm. I don't even know if I was articulate on that last one. So I figured out I have a limit and I need to know. And I try to actually, um, if I can, I make those Zooms in the afternoon, right? Because talking is easier than writing. Totally. You need, right. That's yeah. true. You need your focus to like get the thoughts down. Exactly. Really. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So um, let's just talk quickly about the mindset. You said that uh, the, these people all shared the common belief that the fear of not trying, they feared not trying more than they feared failing. Correct. So what do you think is a mindset shift that somebody could make to make that? Because that's kind of at the heart of the show. It's like, you might have these ideas and why aren't you acting? Is it fear? You know, is fear holding you back? Yeah. But then the idea is to look back at your life at 85. And sometimes I ask my guests this, what do you think your 85-year-old self would tell you about living a good life? Yeah. And so it wouldn't have been like, yeah, it's great that you settled for the status quo. Yeah, that's right. So you need to figure out what are the questions that you're asking yourself about what is it that you want to accomplish today, this week, this month, Right. I have my goals that I want to accomplish by 2025. And I have it on my light in my home office as a reminder that everything I do has to meet, has to help meet those goals, right? So if I want to write two books by 2025, what do I need to, I can't start in 2024 to write two books. So what are some of those (laughs) things? What are my short-term goals, my long-term goals, and what am I doing every day towards that goal. And let's let's just, you know, get a reality check. If you have these goals and these milestones that need to hit that you need to hit, what would have so many people have this fear of success. I really believe that they fear succeeding so yes. much so mm-hmm. that they never get out of the starting blocks. Mm-hmm. What is it you're fearing? What is the worst that will happen? What's the worst that will happen? I took, um, I told you I was older when I, I, um, when I got my doctorate and I was in classes with officers from the United States Military Academy at West Point mm-hmm. and they're older too. And they have had, you know, five tours of duty, you know, they served in Iraq and Afghanistan and everything that goes with that. And, you know, they were hearing people arguing about a roommate who touched their coffee pot. And they, they just looked at me and they said, I can't, I can't deal with this. And I said, well, what do you mean? This, you know, this is interactions between roommates. He said, nobody died. It's just coffee. <laughs> so and I said, you know what? <laughs> it's true. It's right. Mm. So when people make mistakes, I just write back, nobody died. Mm-hmm. And if nobody died, it's okay. 
And we need something that's called, there's something called a valence of Teflon and a valence of Velcro. A valence of Velcro is every negative thing that happens, every roll of the eyes, every negative comment sticks to you. And what happens is it weighs you down and weighs you down and weighs you down till you cannot get out of the starting block because you have this imposter syndrome that is weighing you down, right? You think you're never going to make it. And if you do make it, someone's going to think you're a fake. Mm. But if you're Teflon, all these negative remarks just glide right off of you. So I used to be Velcro. Mm. I everything would stick to me and it would weigh me down and I would lose sleep over it and it would, you know, take up every thought. And then that weekend when we were at the conference and I was, you know, I saw the way that those West Point officers were like Teflon. I said, I'm at a conference. I don't know anyone. I'll try Teflon. I tried it that weekend. It was the most liberating experience I ever had because all of this drama that was all this noise. Yeah. I had no part in it. It was, it was just noise to me. And I, it just, it it just wasn't a part. It just would glide right off of me. And ever since then I haven't looked back. It's Teflon all the time. I love that. I think sometimes (laughs) that can come with age too. Yes. (laughs) That's what I'm feeling. I'm like, I'm I'm done. I'm done. Like this stuff just doesn't matter anymore. It really doesn't. You get a new perspective. Um, Some people look for drama, right? Oh, for sure. Right. And yes. And sometimes it has nothing to do with age for sure. Um, (laughs) But um, gosh, I could keep you on all day. We're going to do that. We're just going to, you're going to come back and talk about your book. Okay. So let me ask you, what do you, what do you think your 85-year-old self would tell you about living a good life? I've been thinking a lot about this. I just lost my dad who was 88 and oh, I'm thinking sorry. Of, oh you have thanks. Oh. Yeah. So I'm thinking you know what what did he want to be known for and you know you want to know that you made a difference. Mm. You want to know that you made a difference in somebody else's life because you were put here for a reason right? Yes. And what is that reason? So if every day you can do something to make someone else's life just a little bit better, and sometimes it's just smiling at them, and sometimes it's just, you know, giving them advice and perspective as to how to make something better. Sometimes it's amplifying their work. And that's why I really believe in this mentorship and coaching and sponsorship, because it can make someone's life so much better. And it's no skin off your back. It's, you know, it's easy for you to do. Mm. It's easy. And it can make such a difference in someone else's life. So make a difference. So beautiful. Um, (laughs) And can you leave the women listening today with your three best tips on living a good life? I'm not sure I figured that out yet. I was older when I got my doctorate. Best decision I ever made. I wanted to do it 20 years earlier and couldn't. You know, I had a family and so on. But I'm so happy I did it. And it turned out it was the absolute right time to do it. Mm. That's tip number one. Tip number two, which I've been thinking about more and more recently A lot of people want to achieve success, but what I have learned is that success is a moving target, Mm. and it also depends who you ask. But getting to the tippy top, I don't know, and I don't want this to come out the wrong way, I don't think it's as crowded as people think, because I don't think so many people 
want to achieve that. They don't try that. People ask me, how is it I got a hold of so many of these elite high achievers? I just reached out. And you're going to say that you just asked. I just asked. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's the worst that'll happen? They'll say no, they'll ignore me. Right. Yeah. Um, but then it became something I'm known for because it was more and more, and I became very trusted in the community, Mm. um, and, you know, trusted with their stories. Um, and that's, I think the, the final thing is be someone who could be trusted. Mm. I love that. I don't think anyone's ever said that of (laughs) hundred and three interviews and nobody's ever said that. That's a beautiful and important thing. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So I'm the only one here with one of those sound machines outside my office because every time I talk to someone, every time, even on Zoom, something personal comes out in the conversation Mm. and they may not want everyone else to know. And I think, I hope I've developed that reputation that unless there's a fear that you're going to hurt yourself or someone else, which has happened before, um, I'm a safe. I'm not telling anyone. But what I am doing is keeping that in my mind. And one time I'm going to hear about an opportunity where we can leverage that experience for good. So I had someone um, come to my office and it very often ends in tears. And I swear I don't try this, but you know, that's why I have tissues in my office. They tell I, you know, I always say, tell me your story, tell me where you're from, how you got here, you know, all this stuff. And I heard someone who um, came from a war-torn country and had to come as a teenager and couldn't go back because of the war and basically was without her family for many years. P.S. I put her in touch with a journal editor who was looking for stories like that. Mm. And she was just ready to tell her story at that time. I just got goosebumps, by the way. (laughs) I don't know whatever happened with that, but I saw it as my opportunity to make that connection, Mm. right? So, and I think that's what we all need to do. Be trusted and then see how you can use that to develop when opportunities arise. And I think that'll, you know, leave the world a little better than we found it. And that might just be the way. I've so enjoyed this conversation, and I'm not surprised that people come to you for that. You really exude such a beautiful warmth about you, and you're clearly such a good listener, and you create a safe space, like energetically. I wish, this is partially why I want to go to YouTube, because there's really something, like, you can just feel it in the energy, and people don't get the benefit listening of seeing you. Um, so thank you for bringing your heart and your intelligence and your high achieving self. um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And and sharing, because I think this is what we talked about is so important. Something that so many people think about whether they're, you know, about to graduate college or later in their life, or maybe, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are starting their companies in their fifties. I think I read some statistics on that. So everyone needs support. And so thank you for everything you shared today. Where can I direct people to learn more about you and your work? Sure. So my website is ruthgotian.com, R-U-T-H-G-O-T-I-A-N. And there's also links there to the resources I talked about for the mentoring team and the passion audit. And then on all the social media, it's just my name, Ruth Gotian. Great. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you walked away with some new knowledge or information that you can put into effect in your life. If you did enjoy the show, please do share it with a friend and be sure to subscribe, rate and review the podcast from wherever you tune in. Thanks as always for listening and I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.